Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with massive demonstrations in Israel over the weekend and today against the Netanyahu power grab, in which the country's leader, facing the prospect of going to jail, has changed the law to protect himself and other cronies who have been convicted by passing a law 64-0 since the opposition had left the Knesset in protest to change Israel's basic law, stripping the Supreme Court of its powers of judicial review. Joining us from Israel is Avram Berg, the son of Holocaust survivors who has been active in politics as a leader in the Israeli Labour Party and the One Israel Party. He was Speaker of the Knesset from 1999 to 2003 and is the author of The Holocaust is Over, We Must Rise from Its Ashes, and the Chairman of Malad, the Center for Renewal of Democracy. Then we'll examine the global heat wave with heat domes over four continents and scorching temperatures in Europe, North America and Asia, with wildfires in Greece and Canada, as well as catastrophic flooding in Japan and South Korea and in the U.S. from Pennsylvania to Vermont. Joining us is Michael Mann, the Presidential Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Science, Sustainability and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of a number of books, including Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And his forthcoming book is Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. Then finally, since Russia has escalated following the recent NATO summit, we'll look into the possibility that the U.S. government and the Pentagon do not want Ukraine to win the war against Russian aggression and destruction, with the Biden administration constantly delaying shipments of weapon systems while Pentagon contractors make money of dumping weapons Ukraine does not want. Joining us is Elizabeth Beavers, Vice President of Public Affairs at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who recently served as Associate Policy Director for the Indivisible Project, a senior campaigner for the U.S. section of Amnesty International, and led the Militarism and Civil Liberties Advocacy Program at the Friends Committee on National Legislation. She has an article at Time magazine, Congress is Grappling with the Wrong Questions in Ukraine. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now from Israel is Avram Berg, who's the son of Holocaust survivors and has been active in politics as the leader of the Israeli Labor Party and the One Israel Party. He was a speaker of the Knesset from 1999 to 2003 and is the author of The Holocaust is Over, We Must Rise from Its Ashes and the chairman of Malad, the Center for Renewal of Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Avram Berg. Hi, Ian. Thanks for joining us, Avram, and and we're seeing both Israeli democracy being put to the test with massive demonstrations, and I just spoke to you an hour ago, and you were in the midst of a demonstration. I could barely hear you. So on the one hand, you see the manifestation of 
democratic energy inside Israel in opposition to what Netanyahu and the religious nationalists are doing. But on the other hand, it looks like they're getting away with it. Listen, it's a point in time, but it's not the entire line. Yes. Yeah, so yesterday they um, they won the the voting, or they had the uh, the chutzpah to go all the way with the voting, but the struggle is not yet over. Far from it. Now all of a sudden you will see all the dormant energies that promised if the legislation will pass, we shall activate our. Uh, civil protest, you will see them. I mean, pilots already telling the Air Force we are not flying, soldiers withdraw from going for service, the businesses react. We're going into a long, uh, a long tail now of struggling against it, and I believe that by the end of it, it will be different. But is this struggle, in a simplistic sense, Avram, between the secular and the religious nationalists? It is, yes, but it is a bit more than that. On one hand, or one layer, is for sure the layer of conservative versus liberals. That's for sure. Or the democratic versus theocratic. I mean, whatever name you call it. But deeper into it, it's something which goes to a larger, for a larger value system, for a larger value struggle that you see all over the world. You see it in January 6 in Washington. You see it with the current prime minister of Italy. You see it with alternative for Germany in Germany. You see it with almost presidential candidate of the Front National in France. So it's an all over the place tidal wave of extremism and populism. So far, Israel and the Israeli Democratic Society are pushing back in a very impressive and successful way. I mean, six months every weekend going out to the street and push and push and push. It's something that you've never seen all over the world. And therefore, I believe that this energy eventually or this momentum eventually will bring down the governmental construction. Well, we have a struggle going on here in the United States where sure. a form, former president is openly embracing fascism and is making a comeback, and has already made it clear what kind of authoritarian government he would enact. So um, we're not immune here in the United States. What do you make of the fact that a couple of former U.S. ambassadors to Israel are now saying it's time for the United States to reconsider military assistance to Israel? I will make a distinction between two elements. I believe that the Democratic Convention whenever it will convene, should check again its attitude towards Israel and saying if Israel is not a democracy, we don't have the shared value of foundation. And Israel is moving away, slowly but surely, or fastly but and unsurely, away from the democratic values. About the foreign aid or the, um, the financial assistance of the... Um, Americans to Israel, it should have been stopped a while ago, not because of this, but because American weapons and American ammunition and American technology is being used in order to deprive millions of Palestinians from their democratic rights. So is it right 
for the Americans to export knowledge and know-how in order to enable Israel to stand against American values? My answer is no. So stop it. So at the heart of this move by Netanyahu, which was voted 64 to 0 because the entire opposition walked out of the Knesset, and it's a change in Israel's basic law, stripping the Supreme Court of some of its powers of judicial review. And at the heart of it is this notion in the law, it's called the doctrine of reasonableness. And it's essentially been taken away. And the ultra-Orthodox party leader, Ayed Derry, was stripped of his twin appointments as Health and Interior Ministry based upon his multiple criminal convictions. And now, of course, Netanyahu is facing multiple criminal convictions. So is this, at the end of the day, about a politician who's changing the law, the basic law of a country, in order to, so that he himself doesn't go to jail? There are three motivations here. Netanyahu to escape jail, the ultra-Orthodox to escape uh, military service, and the settlers to escape all the atrocities that they committed the West Bank and they do not want the supervision or the open eye of the Supreme Court. So these three motivations fused into one. It's ideological, it's personal, it's political, and it's criminal. That's for sure. But deeper inside, there is a severe attack against all the gatekeepers. It's not only an attack against the Supreme Court, it's against the media, and it's against the Attorney General, and it's against judges, and it's against uh, um, the police. It's against anybody who can stand between them and the absolute exercise or the absolute application of their right-wing, ultra-conservative, ultra-alt-right philosophies. So yes, a criminal is a very good tool in the hands of the ideologists. But by the end of the day, let's not let them off the hook. It's the ideologists plus a criminal who created a coalition, which is an unholy one. Well, but what are the countervailing forces? They seem formidable. You've got the possibility of 10,000 Israeli reservists in the military and in the Air Force in particular not showing up for service. You've got the high-tech sector in Tel Aviv and along the coast. All of the business sector are against this. The former military leaders are all against it. The former leaders of intelligence and, and internal security are all against it. That would seem to be a pretty formidable coalition. How is the array of forces here how do you see it, Avram? I see it that, as for now, it's, the, it's two kinds of struggles fused together. First is bottom-up of the people you just mentioned, plus masses of hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets versus the top-down opportunist coalition on one hand. And on the other hand, or alongside with it, I see it as a real struggle over the soul of the people. And this is, do we understand what democracy is all about? If by the end of the day, the democratic argument will, will prevail, the coalition of the, the illiberal the, uh, uh, coalition will fall down. It takes time. It takes persuasion because we just had elections, I mean, less than a year ago. But even now, when you look at the public opinion polls, they are, they are getting weaker and weaker, the coalition. 
And if you have elections today, they, they are far from winning again. And therefore, in politics like in politics, you need patience and perseverance. Nothing is an immediate, uh, an immediate reward. Nothing is a sprint. Everything is a marathon. And we have to have a lot of patience, stamina, and resilience. And by the end of it, wins the one who has more of it. And we have it. But in terms of a theocracy capturing Israel, obviously we have theocratic strains over here with the religious right, and mm -hmm. they've won some. To some extent, they've they've got some traction on the Supreme Court. They won the abortion ruling, and yep. uh, etc. But they don't seem to be anywhere near a majority in this country. But it seems that the theocratic movement in Israel is close to a majority. Is is that right? So I'm not. I'm not at all sure. I'm not at all sure. I mean, even after they extracted every vote they have, and after decades of demography and fertility, last elections was neck to neck, and maybe popular vote we even had more than them. Technically, because the arithmetics of how you calculate, like you have the popular vote and you have the uh, the electoral college, and you have different kinds of uh, counting. When it comes to counting to count votes, um, they have four seats more than our side has. But all in all, then far from being the majority, far from it. So I imagine the media is on the side of the secular forces, are they not? The what? The the media in Israel. Where does it come down? Because the media is obviously very influential the, here in the United States, particularly Fox News in terms of galvanizing the right wing and creating the conditions that allowed a fascist like uh, Donald Trump to emerge as the leader of the Republican modern Party. Me modern media, like modern media, everybody has his or her own uh, channel. So we mm -hmm. have our equivalent of Fox News and we have our equivalent of... Uh, of Steve Bannon, and we have all the equivalents, and everybody consumes uh, uh, media wherever, wherever, wherever they like. You don't have any more uh, the campfire that everybody is circling around. No, it doesn't doesn't work anymore. Yet I will say that you have here two kinds of media. The the, the traditional media is still very much against all of these uh, radical changes in the. Uh, constitutional structure of Israel, and yet what they promote is extreme expressions because it sells better, because it's good for um, it's good for for rating, etc. But not necessarily expresses the ideology of it. So I would say the majority of the media is still okay, but I'm not at all sure it's um, it's totally uh, against um, against this revolution. So, Avram, the United States Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, at the Aspen Security Forum on Friday said, I think we've seen Israeli democracy in all of its vibrancy. It's telling a remarkable story right now that's playing out, and I'm confident the system will be able to deal effectively with it. What system is he talking about? Ah, uh, it's a good question. I mean, I wish I was a spokesperson. Because as optimist as I am, I believe in struggle. I do not believe in deep state systems. So I do not really know what it means. Well, what role can 
the supporters of Israel here in the United States, and the right-wing support has a lot of money behind it, but the left-wing support for Israel has a majority, certainly, in terms of numbers. I don't know. I, I mean, it's beyond my realm. I really cannot answer this. I don't know. Well, it sounds it sounds a little bit like the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, is in a kind of fantasy world. He's not... He's not really in touch with the reality on the ground Ian, there that, that you're just Ian, experiencing. I've no I've, I've no clue. I cannot right. comment on something that I'm clueless. Sure, but you there, you know, we spoke an hour ago you, that you were in the middle of an incredibly energetic sure. demonstration. Israelis sure. are standing up, and they're being tear gassed and water cannons. I mean, just in the last couple of minutes, describe what you've been through in the last two days. It's less about the last two days than it is very much about the last six months. It's an accumulation of energies, an accumulation of protests, an accumulation of experiences. And actually, we have a very good, large, huge almost, democratic force and task force. I mean, the power is almost unlimited. I do not remember in all the decades that I'm involved in politics and public protest and civil society and pushbacks against right-wing governments since the early 80s and or maybe late 70s and on, I don't remember such a democratic muscle being, uh, uh, being, um, being used. And um, you see more and more people, some out of hope, some out of despair, some out of anger, some out of, uh, of uh, social responsibility or civic responsibility coming every weekend to the streets. So yesterday was a kind of a downbeat because many people believe that by the end of the day, the government will find its senses and yalla, find a solution. They did not. Okay, let's continue. So when you called me earlier, I was in the middle of a couple of thousands, if not dozens of thousands, if not almost 100,000 people pushing back. It's all over the country, not just in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. So the, la the next couple of days will be fascinating about it. Well, Abram, I thank you for joining us and for filling us in on this dramatic thank you moment. Very, thank you very Israel. much for the time, Ian. Be well. All the best. All bye -bye. the best. Bye-bye. Same, same. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Avram Burke, who's the son of Holocaust survivors and has been active in politics as leader of the Israeli Labor Party and the One Israel Party. He was Speaker of the Knesset from 1999 to 2003 and is the author of The Holocaust is Over, We Must Rise from Its Ashes, and is the chairman of Malad, the Center for Renewal of Democracy, and he joined us from Israel. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the global heat wave with heat domes over four continents and scorching temperatures in Europe, North Africa and Asia, with wildfires in Greece and Canada as well as catastrophic flooding in Japan and South Korea and in Pennsylvania and Vermont. <laughs> Welcome 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Mann, the Presidential Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Science, Sustainability, and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania. He's received many honors and awards, including the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration's Outstanding Publication Award, selection by the Scientific Americas, one of 50 leading visionaries in science and technology. And additionally, he contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize and in 2020 was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. He's the author of a number of books, including Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. And his forthcoming book is Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Mann. Thank you, Ian. It's great to be back with you. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Michael. And uh, how can we not see that we're in the climate crisis? I mean, it is so obvious. You wrote a piece a few days ago in The Guardian, this heat wave is a climate omen, but it's not too late to change course, And pointing out that there are four heat domes over four planets, scorching temperatures across Europe, North America, Asia, wildfires raging in Canada, Greece, particularly today on the island of Rhodes, and record heats in Arizona, floods in South Korea, Japan, and in the northeast of Pennsylvania, where you are, Vermont. So it's just so clear that we are in a climate crisis. Uh, So do we still have to deal with the battle that you've been engaged in for decades, trying to stop the deniers? Are we reached the point now where at least we can agree that something's afoot? Well, you would think so, Ian. Although I'll tell you, uh, this morning I did uh, the, the CBS Network's uh, morning show, um, and I almost had a Leonardo DiCaprio moment, to be perfectly honest. Um, if you've seen uh, Don't Look Up, uh, a scientist and he basically freaks out on on a similar television program because it just seems so obvious um, plain as day that we are seeing the already devastating consequences of climate inaction that I I know you feel the same way it feels absurd (laughs) that we're still even having to entertain the idea that there's any debate at all about the fact that we're warming the planet uh, the fact that Uh, We are already seeing the impacts of that. And the fact that if we don't act concertedly and and quickly, uh, we will commit to far worse consequences. And on top of this, of course, uh, what's happening in the Antarctic is incredibly uh, alarming that the sea ice levels have not returned in the winter. That's never happened before. Normally, you know, during the summer, the sea ice breaks up and and you have icebergs, but it reforms in the winter, which is, you know, the opposite to our yeah. summer, but it's not happening this time. And what does that mean? What, what does that portend? Well, it, Antarctic sea ice is a little complicated. Uh, you know, when we look at the Arctic sea ice, the Arctic sea is centered at the North Pole, and that ice is melting rapidly. Uh, it's melting faster than the models predicted, um, and and that's a clear indication of you know of a warming planet. Um, and 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 you know we could within you know matter of a, a decade or two see an ice-free 
uh, Arctic Ocean in the summer. And, and that's quite concerning. It would have all sorts of environmental ramifications, um, all sorts of animal species that live in the Arctic that would be um, adversely, of course, most famously the, the polar bears. Uh, but um, uh, that entire um, unique sort of Arctic uh, ecosystem is at risk. Um, and, you know, that ice helps reflect sunlight back to space. So when you get rid of it, um, the oceans absorb more uh, of the incoming sunlight and the planet warms even more. That's why it's a little tricky, like, in, you know, in the Antarctic right now, that's their winter. So there really isn't much sunlight there anyways, you know, right now uh, during the uh, austral uh, the, the austral winter uh, down, um, you know, at those very high latitudes um, uh, where the sea ice lies off the, the coast of Antarctica. And it's different because rather than having an ocean centered at the pole, you've got a continent. And then at the periphery of that continent, you've got ice. And so it's a, it's a different situation. It's a different seasonality. The fact is, this is, a, you know, um, an unprecedented uh, sort of um, absence of ice regrowth right now um, uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. And, and it does exceed anything we've seen before. And it is, you know, another, another indicator of a planet that's warming rapidly. Um, and by some measure, by some of the impacts, um, we're seeing, you know, uh, the real world exceed what the climate models you know, have predicted at this point. And, of course, the ocean water down in South Florida has reached 94 degrees. Now, that's the temperature of a jacuzzi, isn't it, a hot tub? It is, and that's the good news for Floridians. You don't need to buy a hot tub or a jacuzzi anymore. You just go swimming in, in the ocean. Off. I mean, it's, yeah, it's absurd, <laughs> Those are hot tub level temperatures right now. Now we call that an ocean heat wave, and we're going to see more frequent and more long, just like we see more frequent and long lasting heat waves on land here, you know, in the U.S. right now. We're seeing um, all sorts of record heat, uh, you know, heat records being broken. Um, but the ocean also experiences these ocean heat waves, and we're seeing one down there, and um, it has all sorts of potential repercussions. Uh, once again, you know, when, when ocean waters get that hot, um, you have very little oxygen. Cold waters hold more oxygen than warm waters. And so you, you, you sort of lose the oxygen. Um, and that means you're starving uh, marine life of oxygen. You tend to get algal blooms like we've seen those red tides that afflict uh, Florida and other, um, you know, coastal regions in the southeast. Uh, and when the ocean waters get that warm in the Gulf um, and in the uh, western tropical Atlantic, you can expect to see even faster intensifying hurricanes. And we haven't really even gotten into the heart of the hurricane season uh, so far this year. We thought it would be a, a somewhat muted season uh, because of the El Nino event that is emerging right now. And El Nino years, for reasons I won't go into, tend to actually be relatively inactive hurricane seasons. It has to do with how El Nino changes the uh, vertical winds in the Caribbean, and it, it creates more wind shear, which is adverse for the formation of a hurricane. Um, but the, the, the net effect is El Nino years tend to be relatively inactive from a hurricane standpoint. But it's so warm 
that we think the warmth is going to offset the mitigating effects of El Nino, and we could be in for some, you know, some monster storms this season. So, Michael Mann, back to your recent article at The Guardian. This heat wave is a climate omen, but it's not too late to change course. Let's talk about, well, let me just quote from your article here. The answer is that the behavior of Earth's climate systems represents a tussle between sometimes opposing mechanisms that alternatively favor stability and fragility. That constant yeah. tussle is evident in, the, in an examination of Earth's past climate history. If the system is pushed, it responds steadily to a point pushed too hard, however, and we risk crossing certain tipping points, such as the disintegration of the ice sheets and the massive sea level rise that will ultimately follow. So yeah. where are we in that scenario? So, you know, that's my, my latest work, uh, in my, my latest book, Our Fragile Moment, is really about that, about the lessons we can draw from looking at these past episodes, all the way back to the origins of uh, our planet four and a half billion years ago. And, and as you say, there are lessons we can draw that suggest to some extent there's stability. Um, one of the uh, greatest examples of that is our sun has gotten brighter over time. Uh, and this was actually a riddle that was originally solved by Carl Sagan. It was the faint early sun paradox where the sun was only about 70% as bright um, you know, 3.8 billion years ago. Um, and if you do the calculations, Earth should have been a frozen planet, but it wasn't. We know there was liquid water. We know there was life at that time. And that's because the greenhouse effect was even stronger. And as the sun got brighter, the greenhouse effect got weaker. Um, this sort of remarkable compensation uh, that has kept Earth's temperature relatively, you know, within relatively narrow bounds, bounds that are you know, that support life. Uh, but there are also some examples, uh, for example, uh, two and a half billion years ago, we think there was a snowball earth episode where things spun out of control, where uh, oxygen levels uh, rise very quickly. Um, that scavenged uh, methane from the atmosphere, which was a warming gas in the early atmosphere. Um, and, and that, uh, that scavenging of that important greenhouse gas cooled down the climate. And you've got some of those vicious cycles that we know can exaggerate warming. We had them operating in the opposite sense, where there's more ice reflecting more sunlight. So you get even colder, which means you get more ice. And we rapidly saw those aggravating feedbacks sort of send Earth into a snowball episode. So that's in the other direction. We know that it can run away uh, into uh, a, a, a snowball state. And it took you know, many uh, millions of years ultimately to, um, for Earth to get out of that snowball state. But eventually volcanoes put enough carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that they were able to melt that ice and, and we returned to a, you know, a more favorable state for life. Um, well, there are other examples like 55 million years ago, we call, what we call the PETM, where there was a relatively rapid warming, not as rapid as today, but by geological standards relatively rapid warming because of increased uh, volcanic activity that put a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and earth warm earth started out substantially warmer than it was today and with that extra burst of carbon dioxide the average temperature of the planet was probably about 90 degrees fahrenheit um, in fact most of the regions of the planet would have been too hot for human beings at any given time for us to live 
So there's another example uh, where things sort of spun out of control in the other direction. And if you look at sort of the collective evidence, what it says is we've got a, a, a margin, we've got a cushion, and maybe it's another degree, maybe it's two degrees, maybe we're lucky and it's as much as three degrees. But once you go beyond that, that level of warming, and we will if we burn all the fossil fuels that we have, all bets are off. So let's then look at some of the solutions, one of which was mentioned only recently that scientists have come up with a white paint that if you painted it on the every roof across, the, uh, and particularly in all the urban centers around the world, it would go a long way to reflecting sunlight back into the atmosphere and take a big bite out of global warming. How practical is that? <laughs> I'm reminded again of the, the film, and Ian, I imagine you've seen it, uh, Don't Look Up, um, mm -hmm. it, uh, where they come up with this elaborate plan where they're going to mine <laughs> the, the the comet, they're going to break it into pieces and mine each of the pieces for rare ores and metals. And right. it's like, no, just blow the darn thing up. It's the only safe thing to do. And they don't do that, right? I, I've given away, you know, the, the, the story here. And they don't do that. They don't do the sure thing, the thing that we know would have worked. Well, to me, that's sort of like what we're doing here. We're talking about capturing carbon and burying it. We're talking about shooting... Um, you know, particles into the stratosphere to reflect sunlight and painting everything white and all of these elaborate schemes that may or may not make much of a difference, even at the margins, <laughs> almost as if we, we are unwilling to look up, to look uh, down, rather, at all those fossil fuels buried beneath the surface of the earth. That's the problem, the fact that we're mining fossil fuels and burning them. It's not that hard. We've got to stop doing that. Right. We've got to stop yesterday. That not that the situation? Well, you know, th th there's some good news, um, you know, from uh, sort of climate science over the last decade or so, as we better understand the intricacies of the, of the ocean and the terrestrial biosphere and their ability to absorb carbon. We've sort of now come to an understanding that if we stop and this is why there's so much talk about zero emissions, because if we reach zero emissions, the best evidence now is the planet stops warming up when we reach zero emissions. Um, and that's, you know, that represents a somewhat updated understanding relative to, say, where we were. You know, if you talk to a climate scientist like myself uh, 10 or 15 years ago, we would have said even if we stop, you know, burning fossil fuels, just the CO2 that's already there will continue to warm up the oceans for decades. The surface of the planet will continue to warm. And all of that was true. But what we weren't accounting for was the fact that the carbon dioxide levels will actually come down in the atmosphere when we stop burning fossil fuels because the planet will be taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And that, that's a cooling effect. And it offsets that other warming effect. And, you know, when you do the math, in the end, what it says is when you bring carbon emissions to zero, the planet stops warming up. And that's, that's really important because we can prevent this from getting worse, but it requires dramatic action. And as you say, it's not game over, it's game on. And yes. that's... That's why we say it. That's exactly right. why we say it. Yep. Right. So... Then give us a sense, since the, these technical fixes are, are fanciful, and the, the reality is simply that we just got to stop burning fossil fuels. 
How do we get to that? And we can do it. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and there are, and, and again, you, you, you know, the sort of climate deniers, we started the, you know, our conversation talking about climate deniers. And they're largely irrelevant now. You know, you don't hear much. There's some carping here and there um, and on social media, especially, you know, uh, uh, with uh, Elon Musk's Twitter, or I guess it's no longer even Twitter anymore. Um, right. Well, you, but you've uh, got one there. You've got a climate denier right there in Pennsylvania, Congressman Perry. He viciously oh, attacked. Sure. He viciously attacked John Kerry, who's Biden's climate envoy. He was about to go to China, which he subsequently did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and well, he was uh, he was holding yeah. up charts, that, which he said proved there was no such thing as global warming. I mean, the guy's obviously an embarrassment. But you don't think people like that count much anymore? Well, I mean, you know, this is somebody who doesn't even believe in democracy. He's done everything he can to. Um, to subvert democracy. I mean, it's an embarrassment to the state of Pennsylvania that somebody like him represents any part of our state. Um, you know, uh, and so, yeah, you know, the, the, you, of course, you're going to have these sorts of individuals. Um, and, but if you look at where the conversation really is, if you look at what the fossil fuel companies and their spokespeople are saying now, they know it's just, it's not credible for their, for their people to deny it's happening because people, people are feeling the impact. So it's all of these other things, and, and you put your finger on it. And one of the things that they've really been pushing is these techno fixes, right? Oh, we can, no, you know, we we'll geoengineer our way out of this problem. We'll we'll capture carbon. We'll and and one of the other things that they do to motivate that is to undermine sort of confidence in our ability to decarbonize our economy you know, with an existing infrastructure. So one of the lines of argumentation, I was just, there's no way we can replace fossil fuels today with renewable energy. And you'll find all sorts of disingenuous arguments that are used there to, to denigrate renewable energy, um, to basically to, um, to discredit the notion that we can decarbonize our economy now, but we can. I mean, if you look at actual you know, peer-reviewed studies by experts in, you know, um, energy economics, people like Mark Jacobson of Stanford. Um, you know, this, it's very clear that there's a path right now with existing renewable energy technology and storage technology and efficiency and conservation with the tools we have right now. And, you know, California's done it, Ian. You know, your state has done it. Um, you, you decreased carbon emissions um, in part by moving towards renewable energy, and also a lot of the, the cut in carbon emissions has come from energy efficiency measures. And so we've got the technology, the te you know, that's not the obstacle right now. The obstacle is the politics. Well, politics, uh, unfortunately, runs on money. And that's right. Is there a way for companies that are being impacted by climate change? like insurance companies and others, to sort yeah. of start poning up money to match the money coming in from the, the fossil yeah. fuel companies who are greenwashing and, and mm. saying that they're doing all kinds of nice yeah. things when, in fact, we know they're enjoying record profits and they're backing away from their pledges. Oh, yeah, and it's smoke and mirrors, you know, the, uh, the carbon credits and uh, 
and, and all, all sorts of nonsense when, you know, oh, they're decarbonizing their operations. I love it when fossil fuel companies talk about how they're decarbonizing their operations. Well, their operations isn't the problem. It's their product that's the problem. The fossil fuels themselves. It's not how they're processed. It's not the energy that was used to extract them or process them. It's it's the fossil fuels themselves. And no, so I mean that that's absolutely right. And you know, they're bending over backwards to, you know, it's a delay. Um, at this point, it, it's it, it's really a game of delay. They they know you know that we're going to the the age of fossil fuels is coming to an end, and they can see the writing on the wall. They just, as, as you know, want to extend the lifetime as long as they can to make as much profit as they can from the reserves that are you know, still on their, their bank sheets. You also put your finger on the fact that in the end, you know, it's the political process. It's the fact that sure. fossil fuel companies have a stranglehold right now or at least have been able to prevent the sort of action, the, the sorts of policies that are necessary to decarbonize our economy on the time frame necessary. And it comes down to us. It comes down to democracy. It comes out, down to voting. And if we lose our democracy, as you know, then all of this becomes irrelevant. If we lose our democracy, then forget climate action, forget any of the other problems that we face. And so it all comes down, as far as I'm concerned right now, to the democratic process and people getting out and voting and voting out those who stand in the way and voting in those who are willing to do something. Well, Mark, man, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, thank you, Ian. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thank you, Michael. Again, I've been speaking with Michael Mann, the Presidential Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Science, Sustainability and the Media at the University of Pennsylvania. He's received many honors and awards, including the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration's Outstanding Publication Award, selection by the Scientific American as one of the 50 leading visionaries in science and technology. And additionally, he contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. And in 2020, he was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. He's the author of a number of books, including Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change, The New Climate War, the fight to take back our planet. And his forthcoming book is Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into the possibility that the U.S. government and the Pentagon do not want Ukraine to win the war against Russian aggression and destruction, with the Biden administration constantly delaying shipments of weapon systems while Pentagon contractors make money off dumping weapons Ukraine does not want. Who loves the sun? Who cares that it is shining? Who cares what it does since you broke my heart? Who loves the sun? Not Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Elizabeth Beavers, Vice President of Public Affairs at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who recently serves as Associate Policy Director for the Indivisible Project, a senior campaigner for the U.S. section of Amnesty International, and she led the Militarism and Civil Liberties Advocacy Program at the Friends Committee 
on national legislation, and she has an article in Time magazine, Congress is Grappling with the Wrong Questions on Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Elizabeth Beavis. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. And uh, since the Congress is grappling with the wrong questions on Ukraine, what should they be grappling with? What are the right questions? Right. Thanks so much. So, you know, we don't get to write our own headlines in these articles. I personally would not so much say that Congress is grappling with the wrong questions, but that they are not grappling with all the questions. Mm -hmm. So uh, to fill you in on, on what I was responding to here last week in the House of Representatives, uh, Congress took up the annual National Defense Authorization Act. And of course, every year this is a bonanza where everyone puts their foreign policy amendments on the floor for a vote. And as part of that, there were two separate votes that really caught my attention and sort of the striking difference in the results. They were both related to U.S. involvement in the war in Ukraine. So the first one uh, was introduced that would have required the Biden administration to submit a strategy to Congress that included potential diplomatic pathways that might be available to facilitate a negotiated settlement to the war. Um, now, this, this provision would have conditioned the amount of Ukraine aid in that bill on the, the furnishing of that strategy, but it did not cut off that aid. It was, if the administration produced the strategy, the aid was intact. Um, so that that was totally rejected. About um, only 129 members, all of them Republicans, actually voted in support. Uh, and and compare that. This is where what I found really interesting. Compare that with a different provision that would have banned the transfer of cluster munitions to Ukraine. Um, 49 Democrats and 98 Republicans supported it. Um, and there was some we can talk about. There was quite a bit of uh, drama leading up to that vote where congressional leadership even tried to kind of sabotage some growing bipartisan support there. But I was just really struck, you know, it, it is good that there was a strong bipartisan vote to ban the transfer of cluster munitions. I fully support that. It is correct. What is striking is how much easier it is politically to work to make war more humane than to work to end it. Well, is it possible to make war humane? Uh, I find right. that a little puzzling. Totally. And this is sort of the thesis my co-author and colleague, um, uh, Sam Moyne, the, his book Humane was quite a bit about this. He traced a, a history. It's really more about politics and perception. You, you know, you're, I think you and I are on the same page here. There is no way to make war humane. War is hell. And there is no changing that. But politically, what what lawmakers and, and then sometimes, you know, at a national level advocates, what they spend their political advocacy on, uh, it is often more, it's just politically easier to look as if you are taking the worst and most gruesome elements out of war, or at least appearing to. Um, an example that uh, Sam Moyne talks about quite a bit in his book, Humane, he talks about throughout the war on terror, for example, and you've covered this so much, uh, where quite a bit of the advocacy and policy energy was focused on things like 
civilian casualties or um, the horrific torture that was happening, the, the plight of detainees at Guantanamo. These are all righteous causes. They are the correct things to look at. But we still haven't actually ended the war on terror, even though, you know, many would say uh, certain, perhaps certain gains have been made in, in taking the most obviously brutal elements out of the public eye or, or have ended certain aspects of them. But the war itself continues. Um, and right. it's still, to this day, it remains kind of politically dicey to talk about fully ending it. Right. And uh, they haven't closed Guantanamo either. Exactly. So, so Elizabeth, there is, of course, well, let, let's begin with what's happening now. The war is escalating into the Black Sea. You could mm -hmm. have a naval war because the Russians are saying now that they're going to target ships heading towards Ukraine on the assumption that they're carrying weapons. And the Ukrainians have uh, responded by saying that ships heading towards Russia, they will consider as carrying weapons. So, And apparently the Russians are starting to mine the, the Black Sea after pounding the grain terminals in Ukraine. So this war is escalating, clearly. Uh, it could, and there's been a concern from day one that it could get out of control. But how do you see it in terms of uh, having followed this for, what, a year and a half now? Right. Yeah, I, I think it's very scary. And I think that, uh, thankfully, I do think it is rightfully becoming a bit politically easier to point out the escalatory nature of aspects of the conflict, aspects of U.S. involvement in that conflict. Uh, the, the the short version is there, this is going to end in a negotiated settlement. There is not, there's very unlikely to be some sort of total military victory here um, on either side of this. What that would even entail is, is truly, it's very scary to watch things continue to escalate. And so, um, you know, what the Quincy Institute has advocated for is that Washington does need to use its considerable leverage in these dynamics to try to bring about an end to the war before it escalates further, before it gets into a sort of frozen conflict for years and years on end. You know, I um, I hear people advocating, oh, maybe it could look something like uh, <laughs> Korea, like maybe we could just have this sort of permanent armistice. And, and that clearly has not worked out well. Uh, so, you know, we, what we really need here is um, to get away from the destructive elements of this war, to sit down at the negotiating table. Now, of course, um, this is this is not like the war on terror. This is not, you know, Washington's war that it is capable of unilaterally ending. But Washington does have leverage that can be utilized in finding a negotiated settlement and addressing the security situation and addressing the sanctions regime and addressing a, a number of different aspects. And so um, that is quite simply what the Quincy Institute has been advocating for. You know, we viewed this one amendment that was put on the floor simply asking the administration to disclose its own view of the strategy for pursuing a facilitated diplomatic settlement. That is not too much to ask. Um, but unfortunately, Congress is not there yet. They disagree. So, Elizabeth, it's pretty clear, though, that there's an asymmetry here and as much as the Russians are destroying Ukrainian cities and killing civilians, and they've been doing that from day one, and particularly early in the war when they, when they bombed a theater in which over a thousand people were hiding, mostly children. And in fact, the Ukrainians had written on the roof and on the parking lot of this building, um, you know, children. 
And yeah. we still don't know how many people killed. But so, you know, the Ukrainians are not destroying Russian cities and civilians. And in fact, the Russians have been using cluster munitions on Ukrainian civilians, against right. Ukrainian civilians. So, I mean, there's a clear asymmetry there, is there not? That uh, one side is killing civilians and destroying cities and the other side is not. Certainly. I, I, Russia's conduct has been appalling in this conflict. There, there absolutely has to be accountability. It is totally unacceptable. Um, you know, our, our goal here, though, is not to be more like Russia and to utilize more weapons that are like Russia. What we want is to not be engaged in a protracted conflict in which Ukrainians, as you rightly point out, are the ones paying the cost. It is not American lives that are being subjugated. It is Ukrainian lives and the best way to get away from a situation where we are in a, a stalemated conflict that is increasingly resembling a proxy war with Ukrainian lives at stake, with massive civilian death. Um, the best way to get away from that is, uh, that, that's sort of exactly what we're talking about in this piece, is that, you know, yes, we can talk about weapon by weapon, which ones are escalatory, which ones are defensive, which ones are acceptable, which ones are not. But ultimately, we, have, we must get to the conversation about what the end of this looks like. And um, that is that is what we're trying to get to. You know, my, my co-author has has posited that sometimes, um, you know, you know how politics is. Some of it is it's it's PR. It's what the public conversation uh, is all about. And so sometimes the, at least the perception that a war is maybe a little more humane or is maybe not quite as bloody and as ugly as it is, may even sometimes postpone the peace. Uh, because that public sentiment, that public anti-war sentiment is sort of quelled by thinking maybe things are not as bad as they truly are. But things are bad. Things are really bad. And, you know, the Ukrainians have bravely defended themselves. In some ways, they have won in many ways in which they have uh, prevented Russia from subjugating them entirely and turning them into, you know, a Kremlin state, essentially. And so um, it, they, they have fought bravely. They continue to defend themselves. They are righteous in that fight. Um, but getting towards the end and, and getting away from the destruction and getting away from this mass killing, we do need to be talking about that. And, and what is frustrating to me is, is politically how dicey it continues to be to even sort of address that. Well, this pretty clear from what we from what Zelensky's saying is that they want to take back their territory. That's what this counteroffensive is about. And on the Russian side, it's pretty clear that Putin does not want to back down and he's more or less said that he's, you know, in there for the long haul even if even if it takes years. So, that's the impasse, isn't it? I mean, in other words, does this mean that there has to be something decisive on the battlefield, either to make Putin give up his dream of conquering the country or the Ukrainians not achieving their goals and then being forced into some kind of a deal? How do you see it? 
I, you know, I, I'm not going to speculate too much on battlefield tactics. I'll leave that to my expert colleagues who have written quite a bit about this. And I do very much recommend uh, the Quincy Institute's writing. My colleagues, Anatole Lieb and George Beebe, have been writing quite a bit about various ways towards that. Um, you know, uh, but, but, but what I do think is uh, it, it does appear uh, you rightfully lay out the, the two visions of how this ends militarily are not they are certainly not compatible with one another. And right now, it does appear unlikely that either side will achieve that total military victory that they are seeking. And so if that is true, can we help the Ukrainians win at the negotiating table? Is that something that we are able to help facilitate? Is there leverage from the United States that can initiate those talks? And these are things, look, we it's not up to us totally, right? Like it's, it, it's not, this is, again, this is not Yemen. This is not the Middle East. This is not Iraq. This is not Afghanistan. This is not our war that we have the possibility to turn on and off um, that we have, you know, chosen and initiated and are ongoing. But um, but we do have some leverage here and we have various ways that um, we can play a helpful role. And so that's what diplomacy is all about, is trying and talking. And it is never um, <laughs> it is never crazy to talk and to try um, and to find out where there might be. A, an agreement and a negotiated settlement to bring the conflict to a close. And we don't know that until we try and we don't know until we actually do that talking. And so that is the scary part is that that talking is not happening. Elizabeth, there's one dimension to this whole story that I've tried to explore and talk to people inside Ukrainian military intelligence and other people that are dealing with them. And from day one, NATO and the United States have sort of dribbled in weapons for the Ukrainian military to defend themselves. And the Ukrainian military, as you point out, have done so much better than anybody expected. But the deliveries are always late, months and months late. And that goes, remember, they were haggling over tanks and where they should cross that line. And we set the lines and then eventually we cross our own red lines. And then the same thing happened more recently with F-16s, even though my mm -hmm. understanding is that the Ukrainians don't want F-16s. They wanted the big 29s that they already had, but they wanted them to be upgraded. So I'm not entirely convinced that the United States leadership, and you know, people like Jake Sullivan and others, and maybe the same is true in some of the NATO leaderships, they actually want Ukraine to win. Is that, <laughs> is, is that suspicion crossed your mind? Because let's look at the current situation. The counteroffensive is costing enormous number of Ukrainian lives and equipment because the Russians have had at least three months to develop massive, complicated, and you know very well-engineered defenses. And it's easier to defend than to attack in warfare. You, you suffer mm -hmm. more casualties when you're on the attack as opposed to being on the defense. So, you know, when you talk to the Ukrainians, they say, you know, <laughs> if they just would have given us what we asked for months ago, it wouldn't have given the Russians three months to prepare the defenses. And then we'd be in a position where we could, you know, maybe capture Crimea and then, you know, bargain some settlement with the Russians. But now it's just become a bloodbath. So this is my suspicion. I don't have any proof, but I've heard enough from the Ukrainians saying that the weapons they get uh, are often not up to snuff and they get them too late. So do you have that suspicion or do you share that suspicion? You know, that's interesting. To, to me, this actually raises two different things. The first is that it, it is absolutely true that while 
Ukraine and the United States share quite a bit of interests in this situation. In some ways, there are divergent interests, particularly about the the role of the United States in the war, both with the types of weapons that are being sent with regard to what sort of direct participation happens. Um, and of course, you know, Ukraine, rightfully, their ambitions, as you said, they they aim for total victory over Russia. Um, but the United States' interest in many ways are to avoid a direct conflict with Russia. And sometimes those interests might come into conflict and that has happened in certain ways. And I, um, you know, I think, again, as we look weapon system by weapon system, the calculus gets more and more complicated. You're exactly right. We have seen the White House uh, say no to a particular weapon system only to change their mind. But that leads me to the second thing that this makes me think about and that there was a terrific piece by uh, Andrew Coburn that was published um, on Responsible Statecraft, which is our, our online magazine, but uh, just talking about this, which is how incredible it is that this is this is what we have bought for a nearly $1 trillion Pentagon budget that, um, you know, in so many ways, the, the actual weapons that we are sending in, in, are not actually preserving Ukrainian lives in the way that they are advertised to be, or they're not actually serving battlefield interests in the way that they are claimed, that actually is what brought up this entire cluster munitions argument in the first place, was that that's what we have, and that's what we have to send, and that we're, in other ways, don't have other things to send that the Ukrainians might want. And so uh, I, it is really incredibly frustrating to, to know that this level of American resources have for so many years been been spent on weapons that don't actually even work on the battlefield. Um, are not actually up to snuff. And unfortunately, you know, in many ways, Ukrainians are paying the price. Defense contractors are, are reaping handsomely. Um, and and that's, that's really unfortunate. So, you know, I think mm. it, 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 there's a lot behind all this. Sure. And that's why uh, Lockheed Martin are pushing the F-16s, uh, even though the Ukrainians don't want them. I thank you for joining us, Elizabeth. I appreciate it very much. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Elizabeth Beavers, who is Vice President of Public Affairs at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who recently served as Associate Policy Director for the Indivisible Project, a senior campaigner for the U.S. section of Amnesty International, and she led the Militarism and Civil Liberties Advocacy Program at the France Committee on National Legislation and has an article at Time magazine, Congress is Grappling with the Wrong Questions on Ukraine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.
fire. 